I'm sure that in the forefront of many of our thoughts and feelings is the state of our nation today, this week, these past many months. And I've heard from, from many of you your concerns. Um, I think many of us have left feeling like our nation is fracturing. We ex- experience the, the kind of raw vulnerability of this time, this season. And we see uh, the hatred that can be exposed just beneath the surface of our hearts as we wade through this together as a people. This morning I'm not here to tell you what political party or policy to stand with. But as your pastor, I want to say something to you that I believe has deep-reaching political consequences. And that is to remind you and I that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, first and foremost. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of heaven and earth. We've just stated our our covenant and commitment to one another as a church body and family. And you and I, when we entered into the waters of baptism, when we come together in the act of worship as a church, when we come to the table of our Lord, as we'll do in just a few moments, we are confessing that our deepest loyalties... Our deepest desires are to be faithful to Jesus Christ, the Lord of all things. So this morning, I'm asking myself, I would invite you to reflect on, are we living from that identity today? In our thoughts, in our speech, in our conduct in our prayer lives. We read at the outset of worship this morning from Psalm 145. And there's this whole series of psalms there at the end of the Psalter that proclaim that the Lord is king and that he rules over an everlasting, an unshakable, an unparalleled kingdom. And that is truth. And yet we also read in Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians 2, that Lord Jesus, who is the Lord of that kingdom, when he came to the earth in the body of a human person, we're told that he embodied his citizenship, his lordship in this way. Let me just read to you from those verses for a second. This is Ephesians, sorry, Ephesians, Philippians 2, 6, 7, and 8. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, and took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. And he became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. 
That was the example of our king. Paul's point in Philippians 2 is that that is to be our paradigm as citizens in this kingdom. To be poured out. To have, he says, this mindset. One who serves. One who loves. One who thinks of others first and foremost. I encourage you, I, I was thinking through that chapter this week. There were a series of messages preached almost exactly a year ago on those chapters in Philippians. Dom Corvu taught through those verses in particular. I encourage anyone to go back and listen to what that, what that text has to say about heavenly citizenship today. I also want to just give you a word of challenge this week. I want to give you permission to take a break from your social media diet or your cable news diet. I'm not asking you to be uninformed about the political events that surround us. But as we are aware of those things, as we seek to know what wisdom is in those places, let us be more richly, more deeply steeped in the truth of Scripture. Let me point you to a few places. If you're you're taking the time you would usually spend on Facebook or in other news spaces this week, spend some time instead in Philippians 2. Walk through those verses. Spend time in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus himself tells us what it is to follow him, to be his disciple. Where he says that you have heard it said that we must love our neighbors and hate our enemies, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You could spend time reading Psalms 145 through 150, where we're invited to proclaim the glory of God as king and the beauty of his kingdom. And as you meditate, as you refresh yourself in those places, then I'd invite you to please pray this week. And as Jesus teaches us, pray not only for our own preferences, pray not only for our own desires, but go a step further and specifically pray for those you are most tempted to divide yourself against, those you are most tempted to despise or feel hatred toward. Jesus says these are the ones we are to love and pray for today. don't want to spend the rest of our time this morning on matters expressly political, because I believe that, that what we see coming up and out of our culture and this time, not just in our nation, but in our world, is, is a deeper indication that we have lost much of our identity. We are a people deeply insecure about who we are. We are unsure of what gives us meaning and purpose. And when that's threatened in any way, then, then we become anxious. We become fearful. Sometimes we become those who retaliate in word or in deed. So I want to press more deeply today and for a number of weeks into 
this idea, this, this place of true identity. Who are we as persons? And in essence, we're, we're attempting to, to sketch a new self-portrait or a new corporate portrait of who we are. I promise that those of you who are at home this morning, if you've prepared some materials for your kids, some construction paper, uh, some scissors, and either some tape or some glue, here's what I'd like you to do with those things while you listen this morning. I want you to try to make from that paper a portrait of yourself, a self-portrait. But you're not, I don't want you to get a pencil or, or a marker out. I don't want you to draw anything. You just cut some shapes or, or, or pieces of paper out and piece them together, glue them or tape them down to another sheet of paper and make an image that expresses who you are. What makes you, you? What's your identity? You can be thinking about that and, and creating that as we listen this morning. And as you're beginning that work, I wanted to give you a few self-portraits for in inspiration. These are some famous examples from the, the last few hundred years of art history. Painters have always been attempting to, to express themselves to answer this question of identity. And one of the most prolific painters of self-portraits was Rembrandt. Rembrandt is known to have completed upwards of 80 self-portraits during his lifetime. And, and some of them, uh, some, some art historians would say he's sort of the original creator of the selfie concept. He was always looking at himself, seeking a deeper understanding. And some of those portraits are, are kind of playful and lighthearted. This one here, though, is nearer to the end of his life uh, after he had suffered significant grief the loss of his family, children. And it conveys a, a more somber and reflective Rembrandt, right? looking back over his years as an artist, as a person. 200 years after that portrait was painted, we have Van Gogh. Van Gogh also was uh, prone to, to paint these self-portraits, probably... Uh, Nearly three dozen of them are in existence today. And most famously, this one with Van Gogh's own ear bandaged, right, after he had done harm to his own person during a time of great mental distress. I think in that image you can see how fragile our sense of identity can be. We move forward to the, the latter half of the 20th century, we get self-portraits that look more like this one. This is Pablo Picasso, also near the end of his life, I believe in his 90s when he painted this. And you can see in, in the progression of, of art history even, there's a sense that in, in Western culture at least, through the modern and into the postmodern age, there's almost a coming apart, a fragmenting, a fracturing of our sense of self. Identity has become increasingly ambiguous or dislocated. Right? We've, we feel there is a crisis of identity, and so there's an attempt to, to sort of piece it back together, to reconstruct it, to reimagine it in all sorts of different ways. 
But our search for identity in this moment, I think, has reached a point of crisis. I want to pray, play for you a brief clip. This is actually from uh, the Reframe series we did several years ago here at JCC. This is uh, historian and theologian Sarah Williams speaking uh, about this crisis of identity. And during the course of the late 20th century, modern frameworks such as these, they fragmented, they've given way. And the certainties really are no longer certain. And it's left a vacuum of meaning right at the heart. I would go so far as to argue that it's actually left us with an identity crisis. Philosopher Charles Taylor says, an identity crisis is this, an acute form of disorientation which people express in terms of not knowing who they are. Not knowing who they are. And when identity collapses, we experience, I quote from Taylor, radical uncertainty as to where we stand. We lose coherent meaning. We lose it relationally. We lose it spiritually. And we lose it politically. You can see uh, that, that clip points to this crisis, points to our need for help. We need a way out. I'm grateful that as we come to the scriptures this morning, so you open our Bibles to Genesis 1. These questions of identity. Who am I? Who are we as human beings? Have a rich grounding. They have a place where, where identity is given and supplied for us. If we would come to them and receive it. So let me invite you to open to Genesis 1. And I want to pray for us as we open the word of God together. Lord Jesus, in the beginning, you were there. You are the word that gives form, that gives meaning, that supplies purpose to all of creation. You are the creator. Jesus, we are the created. We pray that you would renew you would refill, you would recover your creation, how you have created us this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I teach, may the meditations of every heart in your body this morning be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to open to Genesis near the end of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And we're all relatively familiar, I assume, with this chapter, right? Which is the stunning record of God's first week of creation, Genesis 1. Right? A week that begins with what is formless and devoid and disoriented. But into that space on day one, God speaks and light comes forth. On day two, he stretches out a sky over that chaos. Then the waters and the land are separated out and carefully bounded on day three. On day four, it says God hangs the, the lights, the stars of the heavens. 
And on day five, he begins filling up this creation space with life, with birds in the sky, with life in the ocean waters. And as day six dawns, it says creatures are brought forth over the land to inhabit it. And this increasing vitality and, and complexity and beauty is being established by God as creator. Until finally, here in verse 26, the curtain is pulled back and we see what all of this beauty, all of this vitality, all of this ordering have been made for. And it turns out they have been made to create a home, a place of identity and belonging for God's highest act of creation. Verse 26. On that sixth day, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. For asking questions about identity, the first thing that the Bible wants to say to us about our identity is that it is rooted in what God has created. Our identity is rooted in God's act of creation. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Now that might sound like a theological truth you've heard before, but let me reiterate how countercultural this idea truly is from the way we are constantly being invited to think about identity. Theologian Brian Rosner has suggested that what's more common today is to think about identity as a kind of do-it-yourself project. Right? Because of the collapse, because of the dislocation that we've experienced, we're now being invited to find ourselves, develop ourselves, construct ourselves, be true to ourselves. Right, this is the, the subject, the subtext of practically every Disney movie that's been made for the past who knows how many decades. Right? We're led to believe that not only does identity matter, not only do we need it, but that it is an act of human creation. Something we must engage in in order have something of, of meaning or worth to demonstrate. As well-intentioned as that may be, let me say quite simply, the Bible simply doesn't see it that way. The Bible does not say that we supply our own identity the Bible doesn't say we discover our own identity. The Bible doesn't even say we need to justify our own identity. And that is, in fact, incredibly good news. Because what Scripture says is that from day one, identity is given 
to us. Identity is a gift of creation. It is that basic. Scripture says that before you and I ever begin to to cut out or paint or construct a self-portrait, that there is an image already waiting for us. From the moment God even conceived of creation, he has imprinted his image and likeness upon us. And so in Genesis 1, this word image appears three times in these few verses. The Hebrew word is seleb. It can mean a physical statue, a model, a drawing of something. But what, of course, we want to know and make sense of is what does it mean for us to be made in the image of someone like God? We could speculate there, but I would rather let Scripture inform our answer to that question. And so I want to take some time over these next few weeks to to give Genesis 1 and 2 in particular space to answer. What does it mean that we are image bearers? I think we're going to see in these next few weeks that being made in the image of God has implications for how we live with each other for the relationships we have in community. Being made in the image of God has much to say about the work God has designed us to do and the mission that we are sent out to engage in with him on his behalf. But before we get to those areas, I want to start where I think is even more primary. And that is how being made in the image of God tells us that we have been created as beings for worship. To worship God. And when I say to worship God, I mean to be with God. To know who God is. To live in the presence of God. And to respond to the glory of that relationship. What does it mean that we're created to worship the God who made us? Well, one of the things I think it means is that we are created different or unique. Right? We see in Genesis 1 that, that every part of creation, whether it's living and breathing like creatures or, or the, the birds of the air, or whether it's the mountains and the fields and the stars, right? All of it is created with the glory of God and to give him glory. But there's this unique intimacy that is assigned to humanity. And I think it, it comes through especially clearly in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, we're told we're made in the image, we're made in the likeness of God. In Genesis 2, we get a bit of an expanded account of how God created Adam, how he made humanity. And it says in Genesis 2 that God goes into the earth and he takes the the dust of the earth and he fashions and forms a human frame, body. And as he fashions that human frame, he then does something that he does with no other part of creation. We're told that God's spirit then comes close to what he has made. 
so close that he is able to place his lips upon Adam and breathe life into that body. Breathe his very own breath. Commentator Kenneth Matthews likens this moment to the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss. Right? To be a human being is an invitation to be that close with God. So close that we are filled with the breath of God. And I think this image in Genesis 2 tells us that we're meant to enjoy a face-to-face connection with God. That's who we are. That's what we were made for. To worship God. To be with Him. And so if we're creatures made in the image of God so that we might worship Him, that we might have this face-to-face connection, this breath of God in our persons, that gets expanded, I think, even further as, as we come to think about what does it mean to be with God in that space of relationship. Being made in the image also connotes a place of belonging that we experience in a family. A kind of kinship with God as his creatures. At the start of Genesis chapter 5, we find something I think very interesting. And something I had sort of missed or or rushed past in previous uh, study on this topic. But look at this. At the beginning of Genesis 5, uh, this is later, you know, after the fall, as Adam and Eve begin to have their own offspring. But at the start of chapter 5, we get a repetition of Genesis 1. We're told again that God created humanity in his own image, in his own likeness. But then, just after that, in verses uh, in verse 3, it goes on to explain how Adam, when he gives birth, or, or not he gave birth, but when he has his, his first son, Seth, that it, Seth is a son in Adam's own likeness and in Adam's own image. There appears to be an intentional comparison here. Right, between the relationship a father has with his son and the relationship our creator has with every man and woman he has fashioned in his image. To be made in the image, to possess the likeness of God, means we're his family, Genesis is saying. To bear the image of God is to be his sons and his daughters. Many of us bear a a special likeness to one or more family members. I remember back when our first child, Josie, was born. She, as an infant, looked remarkably like baby pictures that had been taken of me 30 years before that. I could see with my own eyes that this person was made in my image and had my likeness in some respect. All right, even now when people see us together, they'll comment on our resemblance as a family. And that, that likeness, that resemblance helps establish in us a sense of identity and belonging. 
Right? We know this is someone I belong to. Right? This is someone who knows me. With this person, I know I am deeply loved. Right? That flows out of this likeness and an image. And there's so much more that we could say about what it is to receive our identity as God's children, those who have his likeness. Right? We could think ahead to, to places like Romans and Galatians where it says that in, in Jesus Christ we are recovered, we are adopted into sonship with God. And so now there's a spirit in us that cries out, Abba, Father, right? we belong to you. But I want to finish this morning by asking you, right, in this very basic sense of who we are as men and women created to worship God, right, how much of that identity has taken root in you? When you wake up, when you go through your day, do you experience God breathing life into you face to face? You experience that special connection we were created to have with God as men and women who bear his image. Do you regularly experience a sense that in you God sees a child whom bear his image and likeness? Do you hear God speak over you as he spoke over Adam and Eve there at the end of day six? This is good. This is very good. God delights in being close to his creation. One of the things I want to encourage you to do, a practice that I've been growing to appreciate in my own quiet time, is to, to even just begin with these simple truths from Genesis 1 and 2, the truths of God's intended creation, his first creation. And when I come into the presence of God, I remember how he created, why he created, what I am created for. And I am made in the image and likeness of God. I've made for his presence. I'm loved by him as his child. I'm meant to know him as family. I want to invite you to, to think about that, to sit with that, to pray into that this morning as we come to the Lord's table together.